If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. What do you get excited about? What makes you rejoice? This weekend, some of you were with me at a wedding where there was quite a bit of excitement and there was even some rejoicing. I was told at one point there may even be a touchdown, touchdown dance after the vows were made. If you were ever in the car with me and my children after a trip to the library, you would first see faces buried in books and then suddenly bursting with excitement and talking with great joy because some of some amazing thing that they just read about in their book. Well, what, what about you? What, what excites you? What about this morning? What excites you? What's the kind of thing that will keep you up late at night or get you up early in the morning? What is the one thing or perhaps multiple things that give you just sheer delight when you consider them and ponder them? With those thoughts, those questions, hopefully those answers to those questions in your mind, consider this. What you delight in will show what you treasure. What you rejoice in will show what you think is most important in life. Amazingly enough, this morning we come to a passage where we get to see what Jesus himself rejoices in. We get to see what he treasures, what he values, what he delights in. And our passage this morning comes at the end of an extended passage dealing with the calling and the mission of Jesus' disciples. And if you'll recall, in the first of these passages, we saw the call to sacrifice as Jesus' disciples. We saw that there was nothing more important than, than, than following Jesus in faith, that everything should be held on loosely, that we might be able to put them aside in order to follow Jesus. And then last week, at the first part of chapter 10, we saw the way in which we are to go on the mission that Jesus calls us to as his disciples, namely that we are to go by prayer and by speaking the word of the gospel. We saw specifically that 72 disciples were sent out on a mission to declare the kingdom of God. And now Luke, Luke brings that kind of episode to an end by telling us about the return of those 72 disciples. And here we see the theme of our calling and mission is that of joy. And if nothing else, it's a wonderful reminder, isn't it, that the the kind of hard calling that we find at the end of chapter 9, to follow Christ, to sacrifice much that we might go and proclaim His name, that, that, that nothing is more important than following Him. That kind of hard call never ends in misery, but in joy. But in joy. So how is the salvation and mission of the church connected to joy? That's what we want to see this morning. And seeing this, I hope that all of us will begin to take joy in the same things that brought Jesus joy. In fact, the application for this morning is either going to be really easy or it's going to be really difficult. It's one thing. You should sit there and walk out of here a rejoicing people. And what's going to make that easy or hard is how close you are to Jesus. How closely your affections have lined up with His. How much you have been maturing in Him. If at all, perhaps you're this morning and you don't know Jesus then I hope that by the end of our time together, you will know him in faith, trusting him for salvation. Let's look what Luke tells us in chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. May God bless the reading of his word. From these verses, we see three instances of joy, or better put, three things that God has done and continues to do that should lead us to rejoice in him alongside Jesus today. First, we see this, the joy of spiritual triumph. The joy of spiritual triumph. Just before this, again, Jesus had sent out his 72 disciples to preach the gospel and to, to in some way, authenticate the, the reality and the power of that gospel message through miracles. Now, this passage opens and these disciples are returning from this trip. And Luke says they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus replies back to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So here we begin by seeing, number one, in terms of spiritual triumph, our triumph over Satan. Our triumph over Satan. The disciples come back and they are amazed and they are rejoicing that even the demons are subject to them. The demons have to flee when they tell them to in Jesus' name. Where they preach the gospel, Satan's presence goes away. Moreover, Jesus here comments that he saw Satan fall like lightning because of their ministry. Now, on one level, there's some uncertainty about what Jesus means here. What did he actually see? Well, was he actually given a vision of the spiritual realm whereby he saw Satan falling? Or is he simply using metaphorical language stating what the reality was because of the ministry of the disciples? Well, on, again, on one level it's not clear, but on another level it doesn't matter because the end result is the same. The meaning is clear either way. That is, Satan's reign over the lives of people has been destroyed. The strongholds are being broken down. His kingdom is tottering like building blocks on a playground. And there's nothing that Satan can do about it. Though the nations were once spiritually blind, now God is opening eyes by the proclamation of the gospel and they are being triumphed they they are they are being made to triumph over satan by their faith in god that's the offensive sense that is on the offense of god's triumph over satan for his people but there's also a defensive sense of triumph we see this when Jesus says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, some quite, uh, take this quite literally to the point of saying that um, 
unless you are able to handle poisonous serpents um, and either not be bit or be bit and not die, you are not a true believer. Because this is what Jesus says, that, uh, that, you, that we've given you, I've given you authority to tread on such things and not be harmed. Now, as odd as that sounds to us, or may sound to us, hopefully it sounds odd, I think it's odd, but um, the oddness of that is not enough for us to say that's not an accurate interpretation. We need, we need to understand that. Because there are frankly lots of things that are odd in the Bible that we are called to do, and there's no wiggle room. Things that society would look at us and say, you, you are nuts for believing that. You, you are insane for thinking that's how you should live. So it's not just the oddness of it that, that, that should lead us to say, I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I'm not sure that's what Jesus means here. Instead, what we should say is, what, how should we understand these verses in the larger context of the whole Bible? And what we see is that Satan himself is often displayed as a serpent. Sometimes even a very large serpent, a dragon. In Genesis 3, God predicts the ultimate demise of Satan by employing the imagery of Jesus, the promised son, crushing the head of the serpent. Later in Psalm 91, Israel is told that they will be able to step on the adder and the serpent without injury. At the end of Romans, Paul gives this assurance to the believers, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The point, I think, is not that Jesus is literally thinking you're going to go out and walk on snakes and scorpions, although it's perfectly reasonable that that might be the case. But rather, I think what he has here is a much larger view of all of the satanic opposition that would stand against God's people and that we will triumph over that. That the kingdom of Christ will not be foiled by the kingdom of Satan, no matter how wrathful his rage might be. We are secure in Christ. Nevertheless, in saying that, let's be careful here, because what we're not saying, what I'm not saying, because I don't think it's what Jesus is saying, is that we have a guarantee of constant physical well-being in this life. I think when Jesus says, without harm, he doesn't mean zero physical difficulty. In fact, I will say, you might well die under the wrathful hand of Satan. But you understand there are worse things than dying. There are far worse things than I see. And, and in fact, when Jesus is talking about persecution, he says, look, don't fear those that can only destroy the body. Dest fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, what he says is, so what if they kill you? Is that the worst they can do? You're just going to be with God in heaven. You, you better be concerned you're going to go to heaven when you die. That, that's what you should be fearing. So, so there are worse things than dying. And when it comes to Satan, frankly, he could care less whether you die. I mean, I think, I think sometimes he kills Christians just out of spite because he cannot accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and that is namely sending your soul to hell. That's his job. That's, that's his one desire. Why? Because it will bring less glory to Christ. And that is the great aim of his existence. And yet Jesus says, God won't allow that. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then you are secure from Satan's ultimate aim of bringing your soul down to hell with him. So what does this look like in the everyday circumstance of life? And what does it look like that, that we, we may suffer difficulty from Satan, but no final victory from Satan? Well, consider the testimony of one man who recently came back from the mission field. And in a recent blog post, even just this past week, here's what he said. 
After a few months, so, so, so let me back up and say he's recounting when he first went onto the mission field, now that he's been back home after being there for several years. He says, after a few months on our first few months on our mission field, a post-communist dead atheistic region, my family and I were reeling from shock. No, not culture shock, though there was plenty of that. It was the shock of coming face to face with demonic forces beyond our comprehension. Numerous strange events aspired. Leaders of urine poured into our stroller. Blood splattered on our apartment door. A small hole drilled into the front door, indicating a planned break-in, the hole being used to insert a small probe camera. Much sickness, poor sleep, and even sensing, even sensing an evil presence in our bedroom. And then he talks what he, about what he says are the most unsettling, uh, terrorizing dreams that his son was having of a inappropriate woman forcing him to eat from a basket of rotten fruits over and over again every night. And he said at that point, Satan just wasn't playing fair. So what were they going to do? He says, quote, as Christians, we can be sure of the existence of Satan and demons because the Bible plainly depicts them as fallen angels who work in the world to oppose God and his people and deceive and blind unbelievers of the truth of the gospel. We have a very real adversary who roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As the Apostle Paul explains, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The devil is bent on destroying Christians and their testimony and stopping the progress of the gospel. Satan does not want people rescued out of darkness and brought into the light. He will use ordinary, frustrating events to harass the believer, and occasionally he will employ extraordinary means to bolster his scare tactics, as was the case of my son's dream. It may seem overwhelming for us to think about, but remember, Luther got it right. They got to write lots of places. But, but in the song that we sing, that I so much love to sing, he got it right when he says, The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The missionary goes on to explain that in the midst of these things, he asked their teammates to come on the field to come and to pray with them. He says their son's dreams went away that very night as they prayed over him specifically, which in turn drove them to even greater prayer. He says this, we came to expect attacks and be alert, but also not become paralyzed by them. When we started evangelistic meetings in our home, one of our five children inevitably became sick every week without fail. Satan's attacks became so predictable, it was almost laughable. Instead of canceling the meeting, we would call one of our dear teammates to come babysit and pray on the top floor while we held the meeting downstairs. We learned not to be intimidated, but to pursue our calling anyway. Now, some of us may never have children terrorized with uh, demonic dreams, but I wonder how many of the difficulties that we have in life that we just chalk up to bad luck or bad circumstances are actually the subtle work of Satan seeking to undermine our confidence in God and our joy in Christ. And the question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to let him win even unknowingly and to become dejected and depressed and upset that things aren't just going my way, that I just can't get a break? Or are we going to say, none of this ultimately matters? 
Because I am secure in my Savior. That God has given me spiritual triumph over Satan. How has he done that? Again, it's a triumph not just over Satan, but it's a triumph through the Son. It's a triumph through the Son. That's what we see in verse 17. Notice they come back and he says, Even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's in the name of Jesus that the demons tremble. You understand there is no inherent authority in you. Right? I'm always reminded of those guys who, who go out and try and exercise the demons in Paul's name and in Jesus' name. The demons say, well, we've, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but we don't know you. And, and, and well, I don't, you know, what are the metaphysics of this? I have no idea, but somehow the, the, the demons uh, come out of the people they're possessing and abuse physically these guys and send them off running into the fields. You understand that it, it, it's, not, it's not in our power. We, we don't say, look at me and how great I am. I'm going to start bossing demons around. No, 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 no. It's the name of Jesus the demons tremble. Why? Because they know he is their creator. As much as they may not like it, as much as they may despise it, he is their creator and the king of all things. We've seen already just in Luke's gospel how many demons who tremble when they see Jesus, who identify him as the son of the most high God and want to flee and are begging for mercy even. That's our king. That's our savior. That's the one in whom we have spiritual triumph if we are God's people in Christ. It's through him and in that reality that we can take immense joy. But secondly, we see not just the joy of spiritual triumph, we see the joy of eternal life. We see the joy of eternal life. The disciples come back rejoicing at the ministry that they have been able to do in Jesus' name, and they are rejoicing in the triumph they have experienced over Satan himself. But notice what Jesus says. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so here Jesus describes that we have in him a superior life, a superior life. Now, at first glance, it seems like Jesus just invalidated the, my entire first point of the sermon. I mean, he's quite the killjoy, isn't he? The, the disciples are coming back. It's amazing. It's amazing. Even the demons are running when we, when we, at, at the sound of your name. And Jesus is like, oh, just slow down. Don't rejoice in that. Don't, don't rejoice in that. Don't, don't be happy about that. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, is that what he's doing here? Well, not exactly. It's not so much saying, don't ever do that. It's saying, when it comes to rejoicing, make sure your priorities are in order. Make sure you are rejoicing in what's most important. I don't think it's a total negation, but rather it's such a contrast, much like he says, Esau I have hated and Jacob I have loved. It's not that he doesn't have any kind of affection for Esau. Uh, biblically, I think you can say he almost certainly absolutely do. He does have the affection for him. But it's saying that the love with which he has for Jacob is so great that it almost looks like hate for Esau in comparison. Likewise, he says, yes, rejoice in that, but make sure that the super abundant of joy in your life is in the right thing, namely the superior life that you have with God. Rejoice in something more than just ministry success. Rejoice in the fact that you have eternal life. A few weeks ago, I pointed out a big struggle for pastors, and here Jesus puts his finger on another issue, especially tempting for them. 
at our weakest, so much of the pastor's life can revolve around what he sees God doing in and through the church in which he serves. I say weakest because he is so tempted to look at those things and evaluate his self-worth based on that. So if God is doing much, presumably, just because... You have a lot of people in one room, doesn't mean God's put them there. But presumably, if God is doing much and things are moving and ministry is happening, that person, that pastor can look around and say, to some degree, I I, I did this. And therefore find their self-worth and apparent success. And the inverse is true. If not much is happening, if the numbers are low, if the offerings are down, and he's looking around seeing all the other churches growing, he's looking at his and saying, what's going on? There's the temptation to find your apparent lack of self-worth. And the lack of being successful in ministry. And what Jesus is saying to these guys who are just coming back from the mission field, who have seen apparently enormous success, make sure that your joy is ultimately found in the right place. Because there's going to be a day when you go out and you're not going to have success. You think about the missionaries who who now are going to places like the Philippines and to certain parts of Africa and South America and 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 P, the gospel is just exploding there pretty soon that uh Christians in third world countries will outnumber Christians in this country by far and yet you go to a place like Japan where it sometimes takes 5 years to get one convert are are you going to stick it out Are you going to tough it out? Are you going to say, I'm miserable, I'm a failure, God doesn't love me, I can't do this, I'm gone. And be dejected and having no joy in your life. Are you going to say, I'm seeking to be faithful to God and the gospel and the message that he has given, but I know this, regardless of whether or not God chooses to use me in ministry or not, my final, my greatest, my ultimate joy is in this. I have eternal life with God through Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. Make sure that you understand that your joy should finally be in this, that you are known by God. And here's the reality. You are known in all your sin, in all your weakness, and in all your faults. God knows it all. You can hide it from from people in this room. You can hide it from your children. You can hide it from your spouses. You can hide it from people on Facebook and Twitter and wherever you are in the online presence. But here's the reality. God knows you. He knows you even better than He knows yourself. And He says, if you trust in My Son, then the books are wiped clean. Forgiveness in total, past, present, and future sins are extended to you because My Son has paid for those sins on the cross. He has satisfied my wrath against you. Therefore, Jesus says, Rejoice, their name is written in heaven. And this is what we know. It is written with the indelible ink of Christ's own blood. Thus, we not only have a superior life, we have a secured life. We have a secured life. Jesus does say, Rejoice, that your names are written in heaven. Now, this idea of a name being written down is found throughout several cultures of the ancient Near East. We have uh, historical uh, fragments that come down of these long lists that kings compiled detailing the names of their subjects. Just think about the opening uh, weeks of Luke's gospel. We saw in chapter 2 that Caesar Augustus also wanted to know, who's in my kingdom? Who's in my realm? How many citizens are there in my empire? This was especially important for the Romans because the various uh, 
city-states sometimes had their own uh, exclusive privileges to uh, the citizens of, uh, of those areas. So, so if you lived in one town, you may not get all the same things as a citizen of another town. It was important then to have the full rights and privileges of members of the community in which you once lived. So you wanted to get your name down as a citizen of the city-state where you lived in the Roman Empire. Now all that's going around in this common, but Jesus is a Bible man. Jesus is a man whose mind and heart is filled with the scripture. So when he is employing this language, he is looking back to the Old Testament. And what do we see there? We saw all the way back in Exodus, Moses called out to God in prayer, speaking of his name being in the book that God had written, Exodus 32. About a thousand years later, Daniel would also pray, believing this, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, God's book, would be delivered by God from the trouble of their day. And just like Jesus, other writers in the New Testament use this language. In Philippians 4, Paul speaks about his co-workers in the gospel as those whose names are in the book of life. Hebrews, we recently saw, so that all who had faith were enrolled in heaven. In the final book of the Bible, we even read this astounding statement, that believers are those whose name is written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But what I want you to understand here is what it means for believers to have their name written in heaven. It means they're known by God, as we just said, but more than that, it means we are known by God because now we belong to Him. We belong to Him. Colossians says that we were born not belonging to Him in one sense, because we're born into a kingdom of darkness. As sinners, sinning because of our sinful natures, we were citizens of the kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of darkness. But now in Christ, our citizenship has been transferred. We're no longer citizens of this sinful earthly realm. Now we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. So from the moment our eyes close in death here, and we find ourselves in the immediate presence of God's throne, the full rights, and privileges are ours. Thus, the promise of eternal life that Jesus offers is not a promise that that is unsure or wavers because of our faithfulness. No, the life we have in Christ is a secure life. And here's the thing, if we don't remember that, then we will never have joy in this life. All we will have is anxiety. Do I have it? Am I in? Will I be okay? And that may cause us to want to live a really good life, but we will never have joy in that life. Jesus says instead, now and forever, the name over every believer, the name of every believer is written down in heaven. It is secure because God himself has written it. As God's people, as Jesus' disciples, we can have joy because of spiritual triumph. We can have joy because of our eternal life. And finally, we can have joy because of divine grace. Joy because of divine grace. In verse 21, Luke says, In that same hour Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. It's not without reason that Philip Ryken calls this the greatest joy of all because the joy expressed in this verse is far beyond, frankly, anything that we will ever experience in this life or the life to come. This is the overflow of God's own joy in himself and what he does. I mean, we are pushing the limits of human understanding here. We have God the Son rejoicing in God the Spirit, giving thanks over what God the Father is doing and continues to do. 
I mean, that's mind-bending. We get this small glimpse into the relationships that exist among the triune Godhead and the eternal, unfathomable, unceasing joy that is essential to their existence. So, so, so again, these are the things that Jesus is rejoicing in. What should therefore we rejoice in? He's giving thanks for something here. What is it that we should be giving thanks for? First of all, he gives thanks for the Father's gracious revelation. For the Father's gracious revelation. By revelation, I mean the revealing of himself. The revealing of himself. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, little children here might literally be little children, but it's not really so much about age as it is position in life. Jesus, notice, is using this metaphor in contrast to the wise and understanding. So the people that are important, the people that are heady, the people that are knowledgeable, the people that are the movers and shakers in this world, Jesus says, Father, you have, you have withheld from them knowledge of yourself. Knowledge that would lead, as we just said, to having their name written in the books of life in heaven. Instead, you have revealed it to the lowly. You've revealed it to the nobodies. You've revealed it to the little children of this world. Of course, we've seen that all throughout even Luke's gospel, haven't we? Where, where, did, the, where did the Messiah come from? It wasn't in Jerusalem. It was, the, the, the forerunner didn't come from some great high priestly family that, that was known throughout all of the region. No, it was all in this backwater little area, right? The, the, the nobodies of Israel were the ones that were given the glory of the coming of the Messiah and the ministry of making that coming known. It's not to the powerful and the great that God has revealed himself and the salvation he has in Christ. Look what, the, what he says. He goes on to say, verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Isn't that amazing? No one can know the Son, and therefore no one can know who the Father is, except that the, that the Son chooses to reveal that to them. So to put it in theological terms, Jesus here is rejoicing in, expressing divine, trinitarian joy and gratitude to the Heavenly Father for the doctrine of election. It's mind-blowing. This doctrine, loved by some, hated by others, finds itself, however, in passage after passage after passage throughout the Bible. Simply put, election says what Jesus himself has already said, that God is the one who sovereignly, graciously chooses to reveal himself to specific people. This revealing is a revealing to salvation. This is why we could see, uh, uh, we saw earlier that Revelation can rightly say that the names of God's people, the names of Jesus' disciples, were written down in heaven from eternity past. Why? Because God is the one who chooses to whom he will reveal himself. It's not based on our choice. God doesn't simply look, look down to the corridors of time and say, that person's going to believe and that person's not. So I'm going to elect them, I'm going to choose them and not elect this person and not to choose them. That, that can't be the way it works. Number one, because it renders the meaning of choose and elect completely meaningless. I mean, do we get in our time machine and, and uh, in November and look at who's going to win the election? Oh, that guy, so I'm going to vote for him. It doesn't work that way. We choose our guy. Or at some point, maybe a gal. 
Because we want them to win. And the difference between us and God is He's God. He's sovereign. He, he rules and reigns. So when He chooses, it happens. That person becomes saved. Furthermore, if we were to say that His choice was based on us, it would be to totally forget the fact that we have a sinful nature. We are born sinful with a sinful nature and therefore we sin over and over and over again. We are dead, the Bible says, to the things of God. Therefore, God cannot simply look out and say, well, this person, this person will believe, so I'm going to choose him. No, none of us are going to believe. We, we come into this world, Paul says in Ephesians 2, as children of wrath. That, that's a, that's a sobering thought. More sobering is we justly deserve to be children of wrath. And God is the one who graciously comes in and chooses to save a people for himself, not based upon what they themselves do or will do or might do, but solely on his grace. This is why in Romans 9, Paul reminded his readers that contrary to what is normal, God chose the younger of Isaac's sons to carry on the covenant promises, not his older brother. He's choosing to, to use the children and not the wise. He says, well, Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. Are you getting the point here? But because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were fewest of all peoples. In other words, you were the pipsqueaks on the playground. You were the ones that everybody else would have chosen last to be on their team. But God chose you and you only. Why? Because the Lord loves you. That's what he says. The Lord set his love on you and chose you because he loves you. You can't go any further than that. It was God's decision to make. The prophet Jeremiah recalls his calling by God. He says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, you want to say in it? Too bad. You're going to be my prophet. In John 15, right before his death, Jesus will tell his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask in the name of my father, Ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The point here, Jesus is saying simply this. No one saves themselves. No one saves themselves. It is God who overcomes our sinful hearts, revealing the glory of his son to us, giving us faith to believe, and Jesus rejoices in that. Why? Because he says it reveals the gracious will of the Father. See, God could have created the world. He could have said, here's the rules. You got everything in the world at your disposal. Don't eat from that tree. We eat from that tree. And he says, you're done. He could have let sin go on, but he stopped it throughout history. He could have let all of us die and go to hell, but he didn't. The gracious will of the father was to choose to save a people for himself. And Jesus takes joy in that. He gives thanks for that. When's the last time that you've found joy and gave thanks for the doctrine of election. Jesus speaks of a gracious, gracious revelation, but finally he speaks of a gracious blessing. A gracious blessing. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you realize 
I mean, have you ever fathomed what a blessing you have in being born this side of the manger? This side of the cross? This side of the empty tomb? Think back to our study in Leviticus and how complicated it was to come before God and to be made right before him. Some of us complain about having to drive halfway across town just to go to church. Think about the Israelites. Some of them would have had to have traveled hundreds of miles multiple times a year to encounter the living God. To offer a sacrifice that would make them right before God. The only way to worship was to go and meet him through human priests in one city, Jerusalem. Is it any surprise why they went to false gods that they could build a little temple in their backyard? And yet God said they were drinking from empty wells. From empty wells. Do you see how fortunate we are to know who Jesus is? Jesus says that kings and prophets of the Old Covenant long to see what we see today. They would have given up their kingdoms. They would have given up their ministry to be able to know what we know, to see what we see, to have heard what we have heard. Consider this staggering thought that there are children who go to this church, children six, seven, eight years old. They know more about Jesus than people like Moses and Elijah and David and Abraham. And that's staggering. But, but do we, do we rejoice in that? Have we comprehended that? The humbling privilege that we have. By God's grace to be blessed in the way that we are. Have you ever thought about the gracious blessing just looking out at the snow and knowing it's Christmas time? That we actually know what Christmas is? That we can celebrate something like Christmas? For the vast majority of human history, there was no such thing as Christmas. Then Jesus comes. And now there is a Christmas. Even around the world. I was just talking about this with uh, our partners in Niger. And I said, do they do Christmas at there? And they say, no. They take the day off. They have a holiday because they were colonized by the French and the French took it off as a holiday. But they're Muslim. They don't rejoice in Jesus' birth. They don't know why the rest of us are so happy and out of the overflow of the generosity that we have received from God, we are generous to one another, giving gifts and showing affection and spending time with one another, uh, of rejoicing that a king was born. All the while, here stands Jesus as their savior, ready to accept them, ready to receive them as they turn their back on their false God and look to him in faith. But they walk around blind, not knowing that this is what December 25th is celebrated in the Western world. They have no idea that we celebrate the birth of a king who saves at the cost of his own life. Have, have you stopped to comprehend the gracious blessing that we have in being born here and having God reveal to us who Jesus is and having our names written down forever in heaven because of Christ's saving work, knowing that even Satan himself cannot come against us ultimately because Jesus is our king. Jesus is our savior. So how do we understand this how do we respond to this just like jesus with joy and humble thankfulness to god who has lavished his grace upon us even us the little children of the world father that is our prayer this morning that as we as we see the the riches of what you have brought to us in christ that it will lead us to rejoice and to be thankful god we pray for those for even one that may be here and not know you. 
may not know you through your son Jesus, that you would have opened their eyes today to see a man hanging on a cross for their sins, taking their place, bearing their wrath before you. A man who triumphed over that death and lives to never die again as king of all kings and lord of all lords. A man, Jesus, who is the savior of the world. Father, may they trust in him. May all of us leave here rejoicing in what we have through him and only him. Amen.